2: Is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.
3: The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management.
0: Welcome to the Richard Serr Show
3: on News Talk
0: Saga 960 AM.
3: Hey, the Thursday edition of The Richard Serrett Show has launched. Today is March 25th, which is a very significant day in my household. My wife is Greek, my children are half Greek, and so today we say Zito e Ilada. Today is the 200th anniversary of Greece's independence from the Ottoman Empire, who uh, subjected the Greeks to systematic and indiscriminate murder, enslavement, forced labor, child kidnapping, heavy taxation, and, well, basically, general humiliation for about 400 years. It's interesting, you know, everyone talks about reparations for slavery. Where are the reparations for the Greeks after 400 years of slavery? I think Turkish President Erdogan should start uh, cutting some checks. And meanwhile, Vice President Joe Biden, I'm being ironic here, uh, Biden says he supports the idea of paying reparations to the descendants of slaves in America. Now, I'm presuming the money would be raised through taxation. A movement supporting reparations as a way to make amends for the atrocities of slavery And to reduce the persistent wealth gap is gaining some momentum in the United States. 142 members of Congress support something called H.R. 40. That's the bill to study reparations. And William Darity, professor of public policy at Duke University, estimates a concrete problem or program, rather, a concrete program for reparations could cost the U.S. government between 10 and 12 trillion dollars. Now, while slavery is a shameful legacy of many nations, America included, it was neither invented nor promulgated by American colonists or European explorers. Slavery was around in biblical times and continues to this day in much of the world, including the Islamic world. Now, but forgotten in this current narrative is the story of the Barbary slave trade, where up to 1.25 million Europeans were enslaved by Barbary pirates in North Africa. This was in the 17th century. Barbary pirates raided coastal cities in Italy, France, Spain, Portugal, even England and Ireland. Uh, in, In one Irish town called Baltimore, practically every inhabitant was captured and used as slaves back in Africa or on sailing ships, never to set foot in Ireland again. The Barbary coast is incidentally the european term for the north african areas now called called morocco, algeria, tunisia, libya. The pirate attacks were so severe many coastal towns along the mediterranean were abandoned until the 19th century for fear of raid or capture. So, should the descendants of white european slaves be paid reparations by the descendants of barbary coast pirates from north africa, should an american greek A descendant of slaves under the Ottoman Empire be expected to pay reparations to black American descendants of slaves. So at one point, do we just stop passing around reparation checks and just call the whole thing even? All right, we have another crazy busy show for you today. And uh, if you stop paying attention for even a few minutes, you're likely to miss something important. Uh, Carly Nation, host of Media Nation on Saga 960, Monday through Thursday at 2, will be here to discuss cancel culture. It's cancel culture Thursday. Herbert Hildebrand and his father, Pastor Henry Hildebrand of the Church of God in Elmer, have been in the news over the past several months for defying stay-at-home orders. And insisting that churches provide uh, that they provide an essential service, which I think is correct, both were recently canceled by the freedom-loving anti-cancel culture conservative party. And Aaron O'Toole, uh, Herbert will Herbert will be here to discuss. Speaking of cancel culture, independent MPP for Lanark Frontenac and Kingston Randy Hillier has been uh, denounced by the South Frontenac Town Council. They actually held a vote on this resolution. Uh, Randy, of course, one of the leading figures leading the charge against the lockdowns, will be here as well. And our feature guest today is Hampton Conway the III, the Executive Director of Movement Ministries, which focuses on supporting victims and survivors of domestic violence, including male victims of domestic abuse, often the forgotten victims uh, of domestic abuse. Dan McTeague from Canadians for Affordable Energy will be here to discuss the Supreme Court of Canada's decision that the federal carbon tax is constitutional. It was a split decision. What's truly astounding to me is the Supreme Court justices suddenly fancy themselves climate change experts since it seems their decision was rooted in their belief that climate change is real. All right, now I say Zito E.E. Latha to my Greco Franco Canadian friend, the irascible but lovable Lou Skizas. Hello, Lou.
4: Hey, Richard. Uh, great to be with you. Interesting discussion that you're having. You know, I was just doing some quick math on reparations. So, you know, if the U.S. estimate of what would be fair, and that number has to be negotiated like everything else, but 10 to 12 trillion. If you look at the U.S. economy, the GDP is around 21 trillion. So it's not so much the cost; it's the amortization period. How long do they do they get, or would they get to pay off that nut? So much like a mortgage, if you took 25 years, it wouldn't be that big an annual hit. If you took a 10-year amortization, uh, Richard, it would be almost uh, just over 10 percent of uh, U.S. GDP every year to pay off the nut, right? Well, you know, so you decide, like, how long, what's the term, and what's the freight? Uh, You know, if you a 100 years, uh, you know, you'd have to carry interest, of course. The longer it takes, the more uh, vig, as they say on the street, you'd have to pay. But right now, you know, I would look for a number and then negotiate the term. And who would be eligible? Well, I guess that's an, a whole other discussion overall. But I'm a firm believer if you've done someone damage or others damage, then, you know, you can try and make it up with money. But that's about it. There's not much else you can
3: do. OK, uh, how about for you, though, Lou, as the descendant, no doubt, of Greek slaves, my well, my yeah. should yeah. should Erdogan be forced to cut you a check?
4: Well okay so I would always advise clients look for the deepest pockets okay so I'm looking at Turkey with 761 billion dollars worth of reparations I would be, you know I'd be looking for the EU they're a member of the EU aren't they
3: uh, no they're trying they're, they're, oh
4: they haven't been accepted sorry okay they're in the- um, anybody else you know is Russia maybe you know could be hauled into the court? For reparations, because I see seven hundred and sixty-one billion as way too small. You just, you know, you're chasing a piker. You know what I mean?
3: I wanted to uh, quickly promote that uh, after five o'clock, when you join me again, we'll uh, continue with our series on the top ten things that will get you red flagged by an audit. By the CRA. Uh, now, before we get to that and much more, it's time for a little Oompa music, joty, if you could. It's time for our German word of the day.
4: I can't wait.
3: All right. Brace yourself. The German word of the day is in error Schweinenhund. In error Schweinenhund. It means literally... Inner pig dog. Oh, my goodness. If you can't get up in the morning to be on time for work, if you're too lazy to go to the gym, if your homework remains undone until the last minute, don't worry. It's not your fault, Lou. The blame lies with your inner pig dog or inner schweinenhund. That's the tiny voice in the back of your head which is trying to convince you to live a life of inertia in which you will have to overcome to rid yourself of kummer speck that's a throwback to a sorrow bacon
4: (laughs) so keep working on the uh application of multiple german words of the day into a full sentence and maybe we need to get the um the german ambassador to canada to join us sometime and you know uh work with the german word of the day just for Hi Jinx.
3: <laughs> Inner <Schweinen> uh, <laughs> I
4: love it. Uh, Richard, I want to give you the uh, quick look at the markets today. We were up but not radically so. TSX up 23 points, the Dow Jones Industrial Average up 202, the Nasdaq gained 45, the dollar down fractionally 7925 US cents and oil off $2.79, gold down dollars 20 So I'll be back with you in an hour. Happy you, capitalism.
3: You bet. All right. Loose Jesus. All right. When we come back, South Frontenac, uh, the town of South Frontenac, has uh, passed a resolution denouncing independent MPP Randy Hillier, And uh, we'll have that story for you next.
0: Welcome back to The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM.
3: Hey, welcome back. In a rare move, a local municipality has taken steps to denounce their provincial representative MPP, Randy Hillier, at a council meeting back on March the 16th. South Frontenac councillors voted unanimously to denounce the NDP, independent MPP who has spent the last year railing against COVID-19 policies in Ontario. And uh, the aforementioned Mr. Hillier joins us now. Hello, Randy. How are you? I am fine and dandy, other than living in communism. Uh, how are you today, Richard? <laughs> I'm fine, thank you. Uh, so let's <laughs> talk about this. Uh, what was the actual uh, um, the wording of this resolution, or not the exact wording? But what were they what were they saying about you?
5: I I, I have no idea, Richard. I didn't give it a, the time of day. And <laughs> you took before. it that seriously, did you? <laughs> you know, this is this is we we have. A political class in our country, Richard, who has abdicated all of their responsibilities, all of their obligations. They've surrendered their offices to to public health bureaucrats and uh, they're trying to deflect and blame others for their own failings. Uh, So I'm not going to buy into their uh, uh, their dystopian
3: world at all. All right. I'll I'll just share with you what what it said. So you can, I don't know, put this on a T-shirt or something. This is what. Uh, that The motion put forward by Councillor Ron Sleep uh, wrote that Hillier has shown, quote, a blatant disregard for those restrictions and regulations put in place for the safety of residents in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And they're saying this is not the way in which the township of South Frontenac wishes to have this riding represented. The motion continued. Now, I mean, what is the purpose of this resolution? I'm, I'm, ga- I'm gathering it's not binding. It doesn't do anything right. It's just kind of a feel good measure oh. for them.
5: Uh, and that's what we're seeing all through COVID. is is all about feelings. It's not nothing about facts, so it, it's a meaningless resolution, um, and and it's also a complete distortion of of, of reality. Um, I have disregarded, uh, and I've encouraged others to disregard unjustified, unwarranted, and needless restrictions on our lives that serve no benefit whatsoever and and I, i'm going to continue to do so uh regardless uh, of resolutions by local councils but i but i'll also say i represent the people of this riding uh, i don't represent the uh, south Frontenac council they represent their municipality i represent the people of this riding And uh, I'm confident that a great many people in my riding believe that democracy is important, that elected people ought to be making decisions, not bureaucrats, Uh, that they believe that freedom is important and the rule of law is important. And I'll continue to advocate and champion those hallmarks of a free and just society.
3: MPP Randy Hillier, independent, uh, representing Lanark, Frontenac, and Kingston. Now you're currently facing uh, a, a reopening Ontario Act charge. What is the status of that? Are you? Uh, how do you intend to uh, to fight that?
5: Well, I I purposely challenged the law and purposely offended the law to have my day in court, um, and that was on November 26 last year's when the provincial government finally charged me. Um, for having an illegal gathering, a protest on the lawns of Queen's Park. And um, my hope was to get in court early so that I could challenge these laws and have the court straightened down because I'm, I'm absolutely confident they will. However, the first court case on February 7th, they didn't find my file and I wasn't on the docket. The second... Uh, uh, phone appearance was in February, and it was the most chaotic and confusing um, um, uh, display of incompetence. And they got the charge wrong. And now I'm uh, supposed to have another telephone um, hearing in April.
3: It it, it appears that... Um They're not collecting a lot of these fines. And I'm not sure if if you're aware of what's happening, whether these are being thrown out, whether they're just not being challenged, whether people are not showing up to pay them.
5: Well, what we've seen, anybody who has challenged these laws, they've either been dismissed, dismissed, withdrawn or uh, obstructed. And not being permitted to be heard—that's what we've seen with all of them. Uh, I don't know of any that that have gone forward. And I'm I'm confident in saying this, Richard, that the that the government realizes and understands that if and when these are actually heard in a court of law, the evidence will have to be brought forward from both sides, and a judge will have to make a ruling. And I am exceptionally confident that. Any judge will strike down these laws as unconstitutional and and nullify all of these outrageous infringements on our on our rights and our freedoms and our
3: responsibilities. Just have a couple minutes here, Randy, but uh, just wanted to get your take on I I guess there's a petition circulating uh, was started by um, a resident of Smith Falls. Uh, demanding the immediate resignation of MPP Randy Hillier. uh, At last count, I think there was around 8,300 signatures. Um, what What are you hearing from your residents? Despite this petition, what are you hearing from your constituents about what you're doing?
5: So that's interesting. This was a, a lady who was charged criminally for revealing the identities of people from the Children's Aid Society. She released all the files from the Children's Aid Society and caused a great deal of harm through the community. And uh, um, she wasn't happy that I wouldn't help her. So uh, I have my detractor just like everybody in politics. There's people who, for partisan reasons or other reasons, uh, dislike uh any particular elected person. And uh, so uh, I can tell you this, Richard. uh, Last election, I had over 27,000 votes. They have had a petition up now for, I believe, four months. Uh, They've received slightly over 8,000 signatures, most of them from outside of my riding.
3: Ah, interesting. All right. Listen, Randy, uh, appreciate your time, and I hope we'll talk again. Absolutely. Any time at all, Richard. Reddy Hillier, Independent MPP for Lanark, Frontenac, Kingston. It is Cancel Culture Thursday. That means a visit from Saga 960's very own Carly Nation. When we return...
0: The Bull Session continues on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga 960 AM.
3: All right, before we get to Carly Nation and Cancel Culture Thursday, I want to tell you about a pure and potent product my family and I use to optimize our health oregano p73 oil p73 from north american urban spice is a special blend of wild edible oregano oils from the true natural spice it's unmatched in the world Oreganol p73 really works take it from me north american urban spice is the wild oregano expert they did the original research which documents the supportive powers of wild oregano p73 north american urban spice created the wild oregano revolution now it's your turn to get on Oreganol P73 is available in fine health food stores across the GTA, or you can order your oreganol P73 oil online at oreganol.com. That's o r e g a n o l, o r e g a n o l, oreganol.com. All right, it's cancel cancel culture Thursday. That means a visit from. Carlene Nation, host of Media Nation, heard Monday to Thursdays at two PM on Saga nine sixty. Hello, Carlene. How are you?
6: Richard, how are you? Thank you so much for inviting me to join you this afternoon.
3: My pleasure. First of all, I wanted to give you a, 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 a chance to weigh in on this. Vice President Kamala Harris is going to sit down for a one-on-one with President Bill Clinton uh, to discuss. Well, it's part of the uh, the 13th Annual Clinton Global Initiative, and uh, this is about empowering women. And uh, someone on Twitter remarked, having Bill Clinton uh, talk about empowering women is like Ted Kennedy, teaching scuba, uh, giving a scuba lesson or Bernie Sanders (laughs) holding a symposium on starting your own business. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) talk about bad optics. What are your thoughts?
6: You know, uh, this is Bill Clinton has been accused of sexually assaulting uh, two women. Uh, Juanita Broderick and also Paula Jones accused him of sexual assault. There were also a list of other women that had accused him of sexual impropriety. And then, of course, you know, he had the consensual situation with uh, Jennifer Flowers and with um, Monica Lewinsky, and the Lewinsky thing almost got him impeached. This is a man, uh, one young woman, who uh, is accusing Prince Andrew of assault. She pointed out that Bill Clinton was on the just on the Epstein island multiple times, multiple times. This is a man who died in prison, was accused of sexual assault, raping underage girls. So this it, it is odd that uh, Kamala Harris. Uh, would be sitting down with Bill Clinton under these circumstances. This man shrouded with accusations of assaulting women. This man is now talking about empowering women. Uh, Kamala Harris is a hypocrite, an absolute hypocrite for doing that.
3: All right. I wanted to my opinion. I, I, I talked about this briefly yesterday, but I wanted you to weigh in. We have uh, Candace Owens, a big fan of Candace Owens. Uh, and anyway, there's this left wing white male running for U.S. Congress. And um, uh, basically, uh, are you
2: concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over policing?
7: Are you ready for a rewarding career in the electrical industry? Quality Electric of the Coastal Carolinas, QECC, is looking for qualified electricians and electrical helpers to join its Charleston team. QECC
8: offers guaranteed full-time hours, make up to $30 per hour with possible performance bonuses and career growth opportunities. Enjoy benefits like health insurance, dental and vision coverage, 401k plans, and more.
7: If you're a motivated, experienced electrician, this job is for you. QECC is an equal opportunity
3: employer. For all job inquiries, send email to hr at QECCinc.com. Uh, there was a kind of a nasty uh, Twitter exchange. Liam O'Mara is the history history professor in question, who's also running for the Democrats uh, for the California's 42nd Congressional District. And uh, he basically sent com- uh, Candace Owens, of course, uh, a very strong conservative uh, black female, a, um, a picture of a KKK hood, a Ku Klux Klan hood, because in her uh, tweet on uh, Monday, Candace Owens, again, a black woman wrote... The number one violent offenders against black people are other black people. The number one violent offenders against Asian Americans are also black people. But both Black Lives Matter and Asian Lives Matter are campaigns dedicated to stomping out white supremacy because clown world. And then, as I say, in response, Liam O'Mara, this uh, Democrat uh, sends her a picture of a KKK hood and says, yikes, you may have dropped this. Uh, he received a, a brutal b- backlash as as to be expected. But what are your thoughts? Uh, a white Democrat sending her this hood.
6: Now, look, Candace Owen, it's OK for the so-called progressive left to attack Candace Owen. Now, this woman is a brilliant young woman, super articulate, and she's the left very effectively. So they're always attacking her. It's okay to attack a black woman if she's a conservative, but if she's left-leaning, it's okay. You cannot touch a black person. So the hypocrisy around this whole nonsense is really, uh, it's just unbelievable. To send a black woman in this day and age uh, a, a photo of a KKK hood because you don't like her point of view, is the heights of hypocrisy. And it's a complete disgrace. It's racist. The the left, they're not describing it as racist. I hope this man loses that election. I hope black people uh, 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 don't vote for him. Because even though he may be a Democrat supporter and he's got his own point of view and he doesn't like Candace Flynn's point of view because she's a strong, conservative woman, does not mean he has a right to send her KKK racist uh, um, information. He's he's He himself is racist himself. And, you know, Candace is accustomed to being attacked. It was uh, uh, Miley Cyrus's uh Uh, younger sister that criticized her for calling her a kinky haired hole and thinking it's okay. So, you know, in, in, in the so-called America now where the dominant left seem to be in charge, they think it's okay to attack black conservatives, whether you're male or female. And, and, and they think it's just okay to do Candace uh, went after this dude
3: hard all right. And because yep. she went after him, it worked. The hypocrisy of the left knows no bounds. All right, Carlene, always a pleasure. We can listen to you Mondays through Thursday on uh, Saga nine sixty at two p.m. Media Nation, Carlene, always a delight. Thank you. Thank you so much, Richard. Have a great day. You too. All right. Fact check this coming at you next.
0: Just having a little chin wag on the Richard Serrett Show, News Talk Saga nine sixty a.m.
9: Determine what is true, what is false, and what is misleading.
3: Fact check this. Hey, welcome back. So at a recent press conference, actually today was his first press conference, in fact, after uh, almost 80 days in office, uh, Joe Biden was asked whether he would uh, plan on running again in 2024. Now, a lot of people are sitting back and watching uh, the mental decline of the president and, and asking themselves Well, he even lasts another four months, never never mind uh, an entire four year term. But on top of that, imagine another four years, uh, eight years, eight more years of Joe Biden. And uh, Biden says he fully expects to run again in 2024. And then in that same press conference, Joe Biden had another one of his trademark mental lapses. Here's how it sounded.
4: Well, so the best way to get something done, if you if it hold near and dear to you that you uh, um, like to be able to. Anyway,
3: I, I'm going to get a lot done. We're going to get a, a lot done. Right. OK. And uh, in the same uh, the uh, the very same press conference, he was asked about the uh, the filibuster. In Senate, and this is uh, in the Senate, doing away with the filibuster. This is basically uh, going to give the Dems even more power in the Senate. It'll allow them to uh, pass through a lot of legislation with a simple 50 plus one vote. And here's how he responded to that question. With regard
4: to the filibuster, I believe we should go back to a position of the filibuster that existed just when I came to the United States Senate 120 years ago. With regard to the filibuster, I believe we should go back to a position of the filibuster that existed just when I came to the United States Senate 120 years ago. With regard to the filibuster, I believe we should go back to a position of the filibuster that existed just when I came to the United
3: States Senate 120 years ago. All right. I just wanted to make sure you caught that. 120 years ago, there was no hint of irony or humor in his voice when he said that. And he's made sort of similar uh, statements before about the length of time he's been in the Senate. 120 years. He really doesn't know what's going on. And uh, Dana Carvey, one of my favorite performers on SNL of all time, very talented uh, comedian, uh, was on with Stephen Colbert last night and uh, I thought just delivered a wonderful, wonderful impression of uh, Joe Biden have a listen
9: I do him at the town hall when he's like the gentle father to the country and he looks like the alien who came off the spaceship in close encounters yes folks come on folks let's get real I'm not kidding around here you know you know we got to do the thing we did Barack we did the deal you know and uh you know my dad my dad you know lost his job in Scranton no joke no joke, I'm not being a wise guy here. I said, Pops, why'd you lose? He said, "Joe, I did. My mom said, that's the cookie. But she, the crumbles, she says, do it. You know, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Number one, the thing that they said. Come on. Number two, the two part. Folks, three, you know, come on. I'm not kidding around. No rocket science. Here's the deal. Come on now, now that he told, he knew, he knew it floated. He told Bob Woodward, it's Joanne Woodward. He told, Bob Redford. Excuse me, I think I, you know, but folks, I care, I care a lot. People are suffering, and I do. And my mother said, you know, that's the way the cookie is. And it goes those places, and you know, we can do this, shots. We can in fact, do better than we did before. Come on. And and he always does the list. Number one, the one part. Number two, what they said. Number three, you get the drill. Come on. You dog face pay, pony soldier. You know, it's just a lot. That's good. Come on. That's what people said.
3: There you go. Dana Carvey nailing uh, Joe Biden. All right. Uh, when we come back, Herbert Hildebrandt uh, and the Church of God in Elmer, Ontario. Herbert and his father, Pastor Henry Hildebrandt, recently had their... A Conservative Party of Canada memberships revoked because of their anti-lockdown positions. And uh, Herbert Hildebrand joins me next. Stay with us right here on The Richard Serrett Show.
0: Let's rejoin the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM.
3: Hey, welcome back. Herbert Hildebrand and his father, Pastor Henry Hildebrand of the Church of God in Elmer, Uh, recently had their CPC memberships revoked because of their anti-lockdown positions. And uh, Herbert joins me now. Hello, Herbert. Welcome.
8: Hey, Richard. How are you today?
3: Thanks for having me. Terrific. Thank you. Uh, So uh, you and your father have been, uh, you know, very outspoken about the lockdowns and in, and uh, trying to make the point that church is uh, they they are providing churches are providing an essential service. I happen to agree with you. Um, Now, you, uh, you recently had your party memberships in the Conservative Party revoked. How did you discover this, and and uh, just sort of walk me through, um, you know, what happened? So
8: uh, earlier in February, um, as they were getting ready for the convention that was just held, uh, I guess a week ago, uh, the Conservative Convention, we got—I had put forward my name as a delegate um, for the convention there in my local riding, Elgin Middlesex, London. And uh, had submitted my biography and and some of the intentions of what I you know what I represent in the party, and uh, one of the intentions was that um, you know a few other delegates that were a few other um, uh, candidates for delegates that were going in, we were going to put forward a motion to have. Uh, as part of the conservative party policy federally to have church declared an essential service so that in the future if there were more of these lockdowns or pandemics of sorts that we wouldn't be putting um, churches and leaders through these difficult positions where they're being singled out in many situations you know as you well know we see uh, walmart and Costco and doing uh, a brisk bit of business and yet churches are are put on the back burner time and time again across the uh, country in in varying ways so we thought this was an important fundamental uh, policy that really conservatives could agree on across the country because as we know that faith leaders provide essential services to people they are frontline are you
2: concerned about equality and fair treatment for african americans do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over policing is running out this message is paid for by lines for fair and equitable policy
8: workers they are often there when people are in the most difficult period of their life and uh just a few days later i received an email as did my father simultaneously on a on the i think it was on a thursday afternoon and uh got an email saying that our membership had been suspended for 60 days pending uh the opportunity for an appeal from us Uh, but that all membership uh, privileges were suspended. Uh, We would have no voting privileges. Uh, Obviously, that would cover the convention and also um, erase me from delegate consideration. Uh, I did appeal that decision, and the next week uh, they came back with a letter from the executive director of the Conservative Party that the National Council and the... uh, director and I guess the leader had met. And the, it was the unanimous recommendation of this group that our memberships be permanently um, voided and that we would be expelled from the party. Uh, they only referenced, uh, you know, a paragraph in the uh, in the party policy uh, bylaws that says that um, the National Council can do this if there is conduct unbecoming a member. And that was as far as it went.
3: How long have, have you and your father been members of the Conservative Party? I have been
8: member. uh, It's it's been a number of years. I probably bought my first membership around 2004, uh, when Stephen Harper was running for the United Party at the time. I think 2003, 2004, somewhere around there. Um, I haven't always kept that membership up. It's been different times. You know, um, they they lapse, and then the leadership convention comes around, and you renew. So you know, we're not faithful card carrying members at all times. Um, We most recently renewed last year. Uh, in May, um, actually partially to support Derek Sloan's leadership bid um, in the Conservative Party as someone that we felt was very principled and would bring some solid leadership to the party.
3: Well, that's interesting. Do you think that might have had something to do with it? Because uh, uh, the leader, Aaron O'Toole, uh, doesn't want any truck or trade, it would seem, with social conservatives or uh, with, I guess, supporters of some of his opponents,
8: that's right. I, I certainly believe that it was tied into that. Um, I, I hosted Derek Sloan for uh, one of his larger campaign events on the campaign trail at my home um, during last summer's uh, campaign. Um, he was there along with, uh, you know, Tanya granik Allen and a few other, uh, you know, high profile members of the party that, you know, are adamant on these issues. And it seems that they are now persona non grad on the party. Anybody affiliated with or involved in these kind of uh you know efforts to to you know keep up some of the uh, principles of the foundational pillars I would say of the party
3: and are you are you surprised disappointed that here we have a a, a leader Aaron O'Toole who sort of campaigned on being against cancel culture on being uh, pro freedom of speech and yet here he basically has canceled you and your father
8: yes that's what actually strikes me as most hypocritical uh, Richard is that I have an email that I printed off, and I compared the two. You know, and I looked at. Here's an email from him last summer saying, "You know, Herbert, I'm done with this cancel culture. We got to do something about it. It's not right. Uh, you know, we can't be removing the statues of you know that involve people of our history and 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 censoring people online. And he, he you know, he's a complete turncoat, unfortunately, uh, because that's exactly what he's doing. He's now canceling voices." Of that have mains that have large appeal across this country, and he's canceling them, doing exactly what he said he wouldn't do. So I guess, yeah, he's a pale pink imitation of a liberal. It seems now, doesn't it? Um, just just gone full hypocritical on us, unfortunately.
3: And and how much of it had, has to do with uh, well, the Church of God in Elmer? Now you have been I. The police have alleged that you violated the Reopening Ontario Act. What was the church or you you or your father actually charged under the Reopening Ontario Act?
8: Yes, we have charges pending. They have not been heard in court. Um, We haven't actually been able to get to a court date yet. Uh, There's just, you know, consistent adjournments. They seem to be kicking the can down the road on these charges. But we have been charged of, you know, there's been no, uh, these have not involved criminal charges for the church. These are simply, you know, provincial offenses under the Reopening Ontario Act that we gathered in excess of what was allowed under the current regulations that seem to change every few weeks.
3: Right. And in your region, um, forgive me, I'm not uh, sure what what tier you're at. What um, what is the the indoor capacity limit in your church at the moment?
8: So at the moment it's thirty percent. Um, when these charges were laid, that was when there was a maximum of ten people allowed in the building.
3: Right, and th- that that struck me as as rather odd. Uh, you know, you you were allowed a maximum of ten people inside a place of worship. Except you, except if you were actually filming a film production inside a church, uh, if you were pretending, you know, to hold a liturgy or a service, and then you could have uh, far more. Again, just sort of uh, exposing the the absolute hypocrisy of of these uh, these lockdown measures. Absolutely,
8: and you know, we're right next to a grocery store that for the large part of the uh, lockdown has had very few restrictions. Um, they have a large parking lot. They have a large space. They can, people are going in and out and uh, there's hundreds of people in there at a time, yet we're right next door. But because we are a faith-based organization, we're a church, we're restricted many, you know, for months, we were restricted to 10 people at, at the beginning of the lockdown was five people. So why the difference? What makes, what we do so much more unsafe than what is done next door. So, you know, I would argue that that is hardly conduct on becoming a member, but uh, yeah, the conservative party seemed to think that these things, I guess, amount to something that they can no longer uh, abide by in the party.
3: I know that you uh, streamed one of your indoor services on Facebook and there the uh, it was reported that the police were were going over that Facebook footage to see if they could identify people and charge them. Have any of your members of your congregation been charged?
8: Yes, uh, 47 people were identified and charged across southwestern Ontario. Uh, they took those uh, tickets and summons across anywhere from uh, the GTA uh, down to, uh, you know, Chatham-Kent region across the Niagara, and then also locals uh, that live right here in Elmer.
3: So what do you do? What do you and your father do now? You are without a party? Are you going to sit it out and hopefully get back, get reinstated? Or are you going to look for a new home politically?
8: Well, Richard, we're not really um, deeply political people, to be honest. Uh, we believe that uh, you know there's a there, we have a, a duty to do. Um, you know we are we are very much principled people. We believe that it's important to support people that are principled in leadership. Um, that's what this country needs right now. So I don't think we have a desperate. You know, we're not on a desperate search to find a home politically. Um, you know, I am involved in in, uh, in various initiatives. I'm really pleased to see what's happening on the end the lockdowns caucus with the Liberty Coalition Canada, where you're seeing independent MPs and MPPs and also some Alberta Conservative MPPs joining in or MLAs um, that are joining in and say, I, I really think that it's time right now to put partisan politics aside and, and find your... Principles and stand on them, um, because we're seeing that the partisan poli- the the partisan politics seem to be largely broken right now. Uh, we see that in Ontario with supposedly a conservative party in power, yet um, as soon as somebody raises a concern or raises their voice publicly, they get kicked to the curb faster than uh, faster than we can count to ten. So that to me is no conservative party. So right now it's time I call on the MPs, MPPs. Stand up for your conscience. Do what you know is right. Represent the people. And then we move forward
3: from there. Uh, Herbert, thank you so much for your time.
8: Thank you for having me, Richard.
3: Herbert Hildebrandt, uh, Church of God in Elmer, along with his father, Pastor Henry Hildebrandt, recently had their CPC memberships revoked because of, in part, their anti-lockdown positions. All right. Hour two awaits. More with the lovable, irascible Luskisus and uh, Dan McTeague on the Supreme Court's ruling on the carbon tax. All that awaits on The Richard Sarrett Show. Don't go away. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management.
0: The Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk Saga
3: 960 AM. Hey, welcome back. Hour two, and uh, we will speak a little bit later in the hour with Dan McTeague from Canadians for Affordable Energy. We'll talk about the recent Supreme Court ruling that the federal carbon tax is in fact constitutional. It was a split decision. And uh, then later in the hour we'll speak with Hampton Conway, the 30s, the executive director of the movement ministries. He's down in Washington, D.C., a father of 10, educator, public speaker, and uh, also a survivor of domestic abuse. And he advocates uh, for um, male victims of domestic abuse as well as uh, as well as female victims, but uh, the male victims often forgotten in the equation.
0: News, not in the news.
4: news.
3: All right. Time to bring back our lovable but irascible Lou Skeezus. How are you, Lou?
4: Hey, fantastic. Richard just took uh, Sebastian for a walk. You know, he enjoyed it. It's really warm. So, you know, ahead of this rain that's forecast, I would recommend, you know, get out there and enjoy some of the great weather. People have big smiles on their face. Are you concerned
2: about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing?
4: When I greet them on the, our walks together with uh, Sebastian. So everything's good. So uh, I wanted to talk about uh, one of the red flags you got to be aware of when it comes to a CRA audit. Yes. Yesterday, we touched on uh, self employment as something that's definitely going to draw attention because you remember when uh, Justin Trudeau allocated an extra $500 million to the CRA. You know, in light of the Panama Papers scandal, oh, you know, yes. where people were shoveling money offshore to avoid taxes. And at the time, I said, you know, they're never going to catch any sophisticated money. That $500 million is going to be given to chase the little guy. It's
3: a minotaur. A minotrap. They got
4: no place to go, right? Exactly. And so today, so yesterday we dealt with self-employment and the recommendation was get Joe the pro between you and the revenueers, right? Get a professional accountant because they know the ropes and they know how to dance around it and keep you healthy. Now, the second recommendation today, Richard, is don't live large. Don't be out there flashing cash like, you know, you got an endless supply of it. So if, you know, if you're declaring for taxable purposes, um, you know, $35,000 a year in taxable income and you're driving, you know, a Tesla, somebody might say, whoa, how does that make sense? How can he afford it? Let's look into this guy's books and show me how it's justified that he's driving that kind of ride. He's, you know, styling in a big shack, you know, so you gotta, you know, one of the things I learned when I first moved to Canada, make your money in the dark, keep it quiet. Even though you can afford, you know, a high end ride or a high end shack, you know, live below your means, you know, look like the average stooge. Like I drive, you know, a uh, middle of the road uh, sedan, and you know what? I don't get hassled at all.
3: Right, right. So don't live large. So what do they do? Do they do they go through your garbage and they say, "Wow, somebody just bought a, a brand new uh, big screen TV," or or, or are they relying well, on tips? Or how do they do that?
4: Well, I think that you know there is a certain amount of investigation. You know, looking around, checking this out. So if you're in their files, for example, I was once cleaning out my garage in my shack in Calgary and this guy came in. So the garage door is open. I'm doing the spring thing. Cleaning comes in and says, yeah, I'm with C.R.A. The the guy across the road, I said, sorry, I have no information for you. Please leave the property. Wow. So they do send the nosy neighbors around or, uh, you know, the nosy parkers around your neighbors may, you know, Uh, not like your action, right? Like I always say, keep your information, your financial stuff to yourself. If you're out there bragging on how you're skinning this and skinning that, uh, you're going to find yourself somebody dropping a dime on you, right? Somebody who's getting gouged and doesn't like the fact that you're skipping the whipping, you know, for sure they're going to drop a dime on you. Now, if you don't know what that means, it used to be you'd put a dime in a phone booth And the phone would work.
3: So, there you go. <laughs> you know, it's
4: like dialing a phone, right? It's like, wow, what are you talking about? You got What's to explain dial?
3: stuff exactly. <laughs> you got to explain this stuff now. All right. So we will next tomorrow, or yes, tomorrow, we will continue with our uh, top ten uh, things that could get you red red flagged for an audit by the CRA. Now, I got to ask you about uh, the Trudeau government just raised their federal debt to one their debt ceiling. That is to one point four five trillion, which will be surpassed by 24 percent this year. Now, so what, what does that mean in practical uh, purposes uh, to raise the debt ceiling to one point four five trillion?
4: Well, it gives them a lot of elbow room to get into your wallet and spend like drunken sailors. Right. Looking around saying, who can I grease? Which one of my friends can I grease with this extra borrowing power? Right. So the debt ceiling is your ability to go into the market and borrow for your needs. And as a sovereign government, Richard, you got to realize they have the right of taxation and seizure. So if they want to seize your assets in order to pay their bills, they can do that. And there's been rumors going around, you know, uh, at least, uh, what do you call it, you know, test case of, uh, you know, should they, would they, how would you feel if they uh, put a capital gains tax on your principal residence?
3: Right, right. Yeah, that's unconscionable. unconscionable.
4: Well, yeah, but, you know, if the sheep are going to take the shearing, well, you know, they don't kick much. It's not like a bull or something, right? Shearing the sheep, hey, you know, they don't really complain that much and they're easier to handle, you know, because they're a small animal and they don't tend to bite much, right? So (laughs) um, taxation and seizure, this is what governments do. And Richard, uh, I want to make it clear uh, the government is going to file its um, its budget April the nineteenth, right? And right. there has been talk that the debt ceiling is going to go up to one point eight trillion, not one point four trillion, because they're going to need that elbow room to make you safer and you know reignite the economy. Yeah. Right. Okay.
3: Right. And they've also floated that idea. Uh, I think it was. Um, um, I'm not sure if it was McKenna uh kind of um laughing maniacally about the prospect of getting their hands on our our savings canadians are saving too much and so they're looking for a way to get their uh, their claws on our our nest eggs what do you think they mean by that
4: well i think that if you look at the uh last year where you know people weren't going out much they weren't spending much they weren't traveling much there has been a backup, and I think the number is somewhere in the neighborhood of excess savings. Around 6% of Canadian GDP has been saved above what normal savings would be. So there's a certain band in the population that when they weren't dining, they weren't ordering in, they weren't buying, they weren't traveling, they have extra do-re-mi that they can decide what to do with. And now uh, it was Christia Freeland. That's who is, you know, rubbing her hands saying, oh, we have to find ways to get them to spend it. However, uh, you know, the people that saved nothing are in the lowest quartile of Canadians. Right. In terms of income. So 46 percent of Canadians had two hundred dollars between them and insolvency. How much do you think they saved, Richard? I would say right. nothing.
3: Exactly. Wow. That's a scary statistic. All right. We just have a few minutes here and then we'll get a market update. But I got to ask you, I've been hearing about these. uh, In fact, the mighty Aphrodite keeps wanting me to ask you about non-fungible tokens. And then you sent me a story today about uh, a digital artist uh, who's created a home uh, that's worth something like $500. $1,000 or something in non-fungible tokens. What are NFTs, Lou?
4: Okay, so non, you know that, means not. Fungible means reproducible, right? And tokens are these digital uh, images, these digital creations. So it's something that can't be recreated. Now, why is that important? Clearly, a digital home is a collectible it's not, you're not going to go and pack up and bring the family into your digital home. All right. There's only going to be one copy of it and you're going to own it if that's what you should choose. So I look at it and say, you know, it's a collectible. And the key thing with collect collectibles is a, uh, a product that is unique. So you can go out and spend 500000 for this digital home, which is only one, that will ever be made because it's part of a blockchain right you can't get at it and reproduce it now you got to ask yourself do i want my money tied up in a digital home well if you have that kind of scratch and you are amused by the spend you can go and do that you know i don't know if you remember when uh, mark mcguire hit the baseball that broke the home run record yes right the, the guy that uh, the artist that created Spawn the comic book series, right? Um, he spent three million dollars on this baseball, and um, you know they asked him, why would you do? They says, well, three million dollars is something that exists in a bank. Or on a deposit slip. I can't touch it. I can't see it. I can't. It's not in my presence. So he's willing to spend three million dollars for a baseball that could be part of his experience. Now, uh, if we have time, one more thing with regards to collectibles, it can go out of fashion. If you look at the old Dutch masters like Rembrandt, yes. at one time, people collected and said, oh, my God, I've got a Rembrandt. It's so fantastic. It looks great in the apartment and so on and so on. Nobody wants it anymore, okay? Everybody, the market has shifted towards Andy Warhol, right? So people are willing to spend more for things that appeal to them according to how their lives were lived. And the old Dutch masters have fallen out of favor. Not that they have no value. It's just that they're off their peak value.
3: All right. So non-fungible tokens, anything that can't be reproduced.
4: On a blockchain. Right. Because right? that's the token. And uh, it's yours, you know. And you can transfer it, but that ownership would be tracked via the blockchain. All but right. it's not like, you know, a Salvador Dali. One of the big issues with his art is that it's been overproduced and you can't really verify authenticity. And if you recall, Mario Puzo, the author of The Godfather, right, right, he, he wrote another book called Fools Die. And in that, uh, one of the characters said, the artist is the ultimate thief.
3: <laughs> All right. Thanks for explaining our <laughs> tokens. A quick market update, if you could, Lou.
4: Yeah. Uh, taking a look at the TSX today, Richard, is up 23 points, fraction a fraction of 1%. The Dow Jones Industrial Average up 199 points. NASDAQ gained 16 points. The dollar down fractionally, 79.29 uh, US cents. Oil, down $2.73, fifty eight forty five US per barrel, and gold down $7.30. The cryptos, speaking of non-fungible, they were down today as well.
3: All right. Good luck, Madeline, tomorrow at 3 o'clock.
4: And I'll have her results, I guess, next time we're together, my friend.
3: Fantastic. All right, Lou, talk to you tomorrow.
4: Happy capitalism.
3: All right. The Supreme Court of Canada's recent decision on the federal carbon tax with Dan McTeague. That's coming up next.
0: We're back as The Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk Saga 960 AM.
3: Welcome back. Say, how would you like to learn to access the subcamp conscious mind at HypnoHealing Institute of Toronto? And you can help others achieve success, eliminate bad habits, and build better relationships. In fact, you can be trained to be a consulting hypnotist in just 100 hours online by registered psychotherapist and award-winning board-certified hypnotherapist, Debbie Papadakis. Gain the knowledge to help yourself and others at the HypnoHealing Institute. Of Toronto. For more information, go to hypno healing.com. Hypno healing.com. Hypno healing.com. The Supreme Court of Canada says the federal carbon price is entirely constitutional. The split decision upholds a pivotal part of the liberal climate change plan, accounting for at least one third of the emissions Canada aims to cut over the next decade. Here to discuss is Dan McTeague, the uh, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Hey, Dan, welcome.
1: Uh, good to be here, Richard. Thanks for having me.
3: All right. So, what what struck me uh, in in this uh, decision was basically the uh, the Supreme Supreme Court justices are. Casting themselves as climate change experts and saying that they're, they're affirming that climate change is real. Therefore, you know, the the carbon tax is constitutional uh, or am I missing something?
1: No, this is my first conclusion from what I saw this morning. They've uh, strayed away from uh, an interpretation of Constitution and completely delved into Uh, the area of political and scientific banter uh, about, uh, uh, you know, uh, climate alarmism. And it's shocking uh, for those of us who've always felt that there has to be a firewall between legislators and uh, the judiciary. Uh, But this is a brazen example of a court that has gone well beyond its uh, traditional mandate of constitutional interpretation uh, and adjudication Into the area, the very murky, very undecided area, especially when it comes to, you know, suggesting that uh, as they do, that uh, climate uh, (laughs) climate policies and uh, climate uh, concerns are really based on the real existential threat. What kind of nonsense is this? It really tells you something about the way in which Supreme Court justices read their interpretations, much less write their interpretations. My uh, knowing a little bit about them, I used to look at the Supreme Court of Canada every day from my office in the Justice Building. Uh, I know that there are people who work for those justices. And obviously someone wrote this. I'd like to find out what Trendy Greeny did this because at the end of the day, this is going to have significant, massive, devastating consequences for the Canadian economy, and it will do nothing. Uh, on the issue of climate change. So very concerned about this. This is uh, not acceptable uh, from uh, our Supreme Court, uh, who frankly should have stayed within their lanes.
3: Uh, now, the, the, the one of the dissenting judges, Justice Suzanne, Suzanne Cote, uh, agreed climate change is an issue of national concern, but took issue with the power the federal cabinet gave itself to adjust the law's scope, including which fuels the price would apply to. Um, talk to me a little bit about uh, about her reasoning.
1: Well, her reasoning, of course, is to say yes, while we might accept that, uh, the idea uh, that uh, climate change is or is not real, uh, I, she decided to make a decision based on the fundamentals of law and interpretation of law. Uh, and she felt that, of course, if this was an area, if the federal government could simply uh, use a, an international treaty that it signed and, and, and oblige everyone to abide by it, uh, then it wouldn't stop simply with climate change or with the traditional areas. Of, uh, of federal jurisdiction as it relates to things like, for instance, defense or money or things like that. So I think it was a, an important co- comment by Justice Coté to suggest uh, this may be significant judicial overreach. Whatever the consequences are, the court is, of course, simply interpreting uh, whether or not it believes the federal government has the power. Fine. But in this case, it went beyond the power that it says the federal government has and it delved into the area of public policy, which I thought was absolutely uh, you know, beyond the, the pale. More importantly, this will expose Quebec and other provinces that are playing this game of, oh, well, we'd only be part of the federal carbon tax regime, which by the way goes up two and a half cents a liter for anybody counting next week. Quebec has its own Uh, cap-and-trade system, which is only about $0.04 a litre versus what we're going to be paying, which is about $0.10 a litre next week, if the federal government thinks that it can somehow penalize Alberta, Saskatchewan, Ontario, Manitoba, and other provinces while giving a pass to Quebec and other provinces, I think Canadians are going to be not just up in arms over the fact that they can't afford this. They're going to be actually looking at uh, what they see as asymmetrical federalism from my old days uh, in studying uh, federalism.
3: All right, Dan. Well, um, it's uh, it's a bitter defeat, but um, does this mean? I mean, is this is the end of the road. Do you think there, no. there are other court challenges?
1: No I don't this is where the courts the court should not have been involved in this. The court of public opinion should have. And if Canadians don't understand how hard this is going to be, wait till they open their bills this week on their utilities. Green energy has been absolutely destructive and corrosive both to job creation as well as to affordability. Uh, I, sus- I suspect when people see that gasoline in eight or nine years will be 48 cents a liter higher, diesel 55 and grocery prices grow through the roof they're going to start to complain especially since they won't have jobs in the mining, energy or manufacturing sector anywhere in canada
3: dan mcteague president of the canadians for affordable energy and you can follow him on gas price wizard and the website is affordableenergy.ca hey dan always a pleasure thank you great to be here thanks for having me again all right when we come back hampton conway the third executive director of the movement ministries advocating for male victims of domestic abuse back with more right here on the richard sarat show don't go away
0: Continuing with the conversation, this is The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960
3: AM. Hey, welcome back. Now, here are some dire statistics you may not be familiar with. This is a survey taken by the Centers for Disease Control back in 2010 that showed 40% of the victims of severe physical domestic violence in America are men. That's right. 40% of the victims of severe physical domestic violence are men. 63% of males, as opposed to 15% of females, had a deadly weapon used against them in a domestic violence incident. Only 15% of the domestic violence that is reported to law enforcement officials is against men. The number of men who are estimated to be assaulted by an intimate partner every year in the United States, eight hundred. And 35,000. Hampton Conway III is the executive director of the Movement Ministries. He's a father of 10, an educator of many, and uh, we welcome him to the program. Hello, Hampton. How are you?
7: I am great. Thanks for having me.
3: My pleasure. Uh, Tell me a little bit about the Movement Ministries.
7: Yes, sir. That is a um, faith-based human resources uh, nonprofit um, that a, a partner of mine and I started. uh, We uh, aim to serve uh, the victims and survivors of domestic violence. And I always try to make a point to say survivors as well, because even when you're out of the situation, uh, there's still a lot of support and healing that needs to take place. Um, And so we support that group. And then also we work with our returning citizens, those who have been incarcerated, transitioning back into society and helping them with support and resources as well.
3: And we should point out your, your your sole focus is not on male victims. You also work with female victims of abuse. But today we're focusing on something that I think is is overlooked, and that is our, our male victims. So I read some of these statistics um, and I don't know how how accurate they are now, because this is 2010. Uh, but why are men so silent when it comes to domestic violence?
7: Yeah, that's a great question. And. You know, most. Thank you for pointing out the fact that we do advocate for all victims, and I. But I am, you know, particularly uh, focused on men because of my own experience. But you know, most very. Often,
2: are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over policing? Is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.
7: Often most victims, no matter if they're male or female, uh stay silent for some time. But I think men are even more prone to be silent because of um pride, ego. You know, we you know, men are you know, we're taught that we're to 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 carry ourselves in a certain way and have a certain uh, stature and and you know, within society we're taught, you know not to show emotion, not to, you know, men don't cry, you know, in certain cultures, you know, that kind of thing. And so, um, you know, it's no secret why a man would want to keep something like that, uh,
3: a secret. So you mentioned that, uh, your experience, you are a victim or were a victim of domestic abuse. Can you talk to me a little bit about that?
7: Yes. Um, I was married 14 years, um, and shortly after the marriage, uh, maybe a few months in, um, I started, you know, experiencing some things and noticing some behaviors that I hadn't experienced while we were dating. And um, interestingly enough, you know, there weren't shows like yours. Uh, there wasn't social media. There wasn't, you know, when I was growing up, there wasn't a whole lot of conversation about this. So I had no background knowledge, you know, as it when it came to domestic violence. I, I know, I'm sure it was going on in my community, but, you know, I didn't know about it, never talked about it. So when it started happening to me, I internalized it. I thought, okay, I got to be a better man. I, I, I got to be a better husband. I got to love her more, and, you know, maybe some change and, you know, all these kind of things. But I definitely experienced physical violence um, and mental and emotional. Uh, and let me tell you, man, that mental emotional, the mental and emotional scars, far away the physical scars um, that I have. I, I'm still in therapy to this day. You know, still trying to just, you know, work through some things and confront a lot of things that I actually had suppressed, um, you know, uh, to heal from that.
3: And you are the father of 10 children? Yes, sir. And and some of your children were also? Um,
7: yeah, helping. yeah. The children also did experience abuse as well.
3: So how do you respond to uh, individuals or groups who suggest, all right, so... A man may be attacked by a woman, but let's face it, men are on average, physically stronger. They're larger. Uh, And so while they may be uh, victims, there's there's no necessarily equivalency here because men are far more effective and efficient at meeting out violence.
7: You know, so (laughs) that's a good point. I was taught. I, I was raised. To never, never hit a woman, um, and I—I I gr- I have one sister, and I hit my sister one time when I was a kid, and my father made it very clear that that was to never happen again. And so I grew up. You know, that's the way I grew up, and I know a lot of men grow up that way. The other issue is um, because of the stigma, because of the way you know the domestic violence is looked at. If I had ever retaliated, um. I would have been in a world of trouble. I never did retaliate. Um, but had I, you know, I would have been in and you know, I, I just could never risk, you know, the, the, the result of if I actually retaliated versus, you know, what she was doing to me.
3: All right. We'll take a quick time out. Uh please stay with us and uh we'll continue to discuss the uh the little discussed issue of male victims of domestic violence. Hampton Conway third executive director of the movement Ministries, stays with us right here on the Richard Sarrett show.
0: This is new Sox saga, 960 AM and this is the Richard Sarrett show.
3: And we're back with Hampton Conway, the third executive director of the movement ministries. You're down in uh, the Washington DC area, Hampton.
7: Yes, sir. I am the DMV area.
3: All right. So, um, because men are, again, on on average physically uh, stronger, it's wow. just it's assumed that that men are supposed to be able to subdue women, not necessarily hit them back and to defend themselves, but to subdue a woman if she is lashing out, let's say, against her male partner. Um, and and so because of that, if if a man is being abused um, and he's not able to subdue the woman, is he therefore? Do you think blamed for becoming the victim in that in that circumstance
7: i do definitely think that you know men are looked at well i think it's a a variety of ways um i think men could be blamed but uh, you know aside from the physical aspect you know there's so much that still takes place with respect to like i said the emotional and the verbal abuse uh so even if you threw the physical piece out the picture i mean there there were times where you know you know, I had clothes destroyed. I had, you know, some of my property destroyed or thrown away or, you know, and just a lot of just man- very manipulative, uh, underhanded and undermining type of things, even between me and the kids. I mean, she would pit my kids against me and and try to, you know, um, you know, disrespect me in front of the kids to create, you know, tension with, you know, between me and the children. And so it's just so it's a multitude of things, even besides uh, the physical part, which is the part that I think a lot of people, not only do they look overlook the physical part, but people don't realize how much of the emotional and the verbal stuff that is taking place um, within these type of relationships that are also abuse.
3: How did you finally extricate yourself from that relationship?
7: Man, I got into a place where I was so, so depressed and and just in such a dark place that the only thing I could think of, the only two things that were were, were prevalent in my mind was hurting myself. Um, honestly, I was contemplating suicide and I was also thinking about hurting her. And so, you know, I got to a place where I was like, you know what, neither one of these is a good option. Uh, and I had left before, but only for maybe two, three days at a time. And so, you know, it finally got to a place where I just just knew I had to do something not only to get myself out of the situation, but make a better life for the children. And so I did finally leave. Um, And and fortunately, I had somewhere to go. Now, I couldn't go to a shelter because the shelters in the area I was in didn't take men. There weren't men's shelters, which is another reason why, you know, I'm trying to do what I can through my organization uh, to make a difference in, in things like situations like that. But I couldn't go to a shelter or anything like that. But unfortunately, I was able to come back to Maryland and move back into the home of my parents. Um, but a lot of people in these situations don't have somewhere to go, which is one of the reasons why they continue to stay, you know, in these situations.
3: Right. Right. That, that was going to be my next question about where do you go? Because my understanding is, and I, and um, this may not be up to date, but many shelters for victims of abuse uh, f- primarily for women don't even take boys over the age of 13. That is, is correct. That, that's still the case. That
7: is correct. Yeah, that is all very correct. And so if you're, if you're a mother, who's fleeing abuse, but yet you've got a a, a teenage child, you know, male child, you're stuck, (laughs) you know? So yeah, it's it's a complicated situation.
3: So how many, do you, do you know how many um, uh, victims abuse shelters are are, currently exist for, for men?
7: I don't have a number and that is something that I'm actively searching for. You know, I would say right here in my County, uh, there isn't one. There isn't one. Um, there are a few for women. Um, now, by law, what I've been told, what I've contacted those shelters is that by law, they have to make accommodations um, to support men. So that might be putting them up in a hotel or, you know, something like that, that if they're providing this service for women um, and they're using like federal money, for example, to, to, to federal grants to provide services for women, you know, legally, they just have to be able to provide services for men. But people don't know that. Like, that's, you know, that's that when you go to a shelter, you know, you don't know that or even you're researching it. You don't know that there are some resources out there for men, um, you know, as much as there are for women.
3: I know that you uh, you partner with other organizations, including Sisters for Sisters and um, uh, Voices Against Domestic Violence. Um but there are I'm I'm, I'm wondering maybe uh, here is the question whether there are uh, certain certain groups who advocate for for women victims who see what you're doing as somehow undermining what they're trying to do.
7: You are asking all the right questions. There are definitely sectors of, of, of organizations out there that unfortunately look at it like a competition. And honestly, like, you know, I want to bring attention and advocate for all victims. You know, uh, elder abuse is, is astounding. The stats on elder abuse are astounding. Teen dating violence is a big issue. Um, violent, uh, uh, intimate partner violence within the LGBTQ community is astounding. But the problem is the, the, the organizations that are getting all the resources are the ones that are just focused on women. And so I'm trying to change that. But you're right. Um, Some organizations, unfortunately, do look at it that way.
3: You you mentioned, um, you know, domestic violence within the LGBTQ community. And here's an interesting statistic from, again, the Centers on Disease Control. Twenty three percent of men have reported that they were physically or sexually assaulted by their male intimate partner. Twenty three percent. That's like almost a quarter. That's astounding.
7: Absolutely. And I mean, the more and more you look at all these stats, like I said, with teen dating violence and elder elder abuse, I mean, it especially since quarantine, I don't know if you've seen any of the stats around that. But, you know, when 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 this quarantine happened, uh, you know, those numbers shot up in all sectors.
3: Yes, absolutely. All right. An- yeah, another part of the, the collateral damage of the lockdowns. So Hampton, we're going to take another time out. We'll come back and uh, talk some more. Hampton Econway, the III is uh, the executive director of the Movement Ministries. We'll be back with more right here on The Richard Serrett Show. Stay with us.
0: Continuing with the conversation, this is The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960 AM.
3: Hampton Conway III works with uh, returning citizens, in other words, uh, inmates, low-income families, and also the victims of uh, domestic abuse, male and female. But today we're focusing on uh, male victims of domestic abuse. The website is makemoves.org, makemoves.org. And you can also find him on Twitter at we underscore make moves. We underscore make moves. I mentioned that you work with uh, returning citizens or, or you know, former uh, inmates. And, you know, we've all heard those jokes, which actually continue uh, to this day about what happens to guys in prison, right? The prison shower, the bar of soap, ha ha ha. It, you know, hard to imagine in, in this day and age, 2021, um, even people who, who consider themselves to be woke are making jokes about prison rape
7: yeah that's that that's unfortunate because uh the trauma that comes along with that man it's it's definitely such an uphill battle um you know again it's kind of the same you know rationale why we deal with survivors of domestic violence um you know because it's you know the, the, the story's not over once they're out of it and so the same thing for those inmates you know when they come out Um, Not only are they trying to transition back into society, trying to find employment in in, in communities that often will turn them away, regardless of their skills uh, or or experience. Um, But then they're also dealing with the trauma of what they have experienced while they were incarcerated. And um, that can play out. You know, that trauma will manifest in many ways if they don't get the help and the
3: resources they need. Right, right. So. When when you have so many boys becoming victims and so many men being exposed to abuse from an early age, it seems like to me we're creating two problems. You have we're creating this cycle of abuse in our society where boys grow up to be men who think it's fine to be a domestic abuser. It happened to them, so they might as well do it to someone else. And then we're also creating these hidden victims because we're shaming men into believing they should do more to stop domestic violence when it happens to them.
7: Yeah, that's a great point. You know, from from, you know, when you think about from the children's standpoint, you know, everything everything is learned behaviors. Right. So, you know, if if, if a child grows up and they see, uh, yeah, let's say the child wasn't even abused themselves. Let's just say they see it uh, growing up. They see mom and dad, you know, fighting constantly and and, and mistreating each other constantly. Well, they that, that gets normalized for them. Right. So then they go up to the point they get into a relationship. And that's what they think love looks like. That's what they think love is supposed to be. And so that thing just continues to to permeate, like you said, it just becomes a cycle. Um, and, you know, women will settle for a man that's abusive because they think, well, this is just how it goes. Or men will then become abusers themselves. You know, and, and yes, it's just a cycle that goes
3: on and on and on. All right. So what do we do about it? I mean, it's often I I find that we're with so many of the world's problems. We're looking for political solutions where where really the solution is spiritual. Um, But how do we what do we do about not not only domestic abuse uh, against women, obviously, but against men, because we have these hidden victims?
7: Yeah. You know, so I make it a point to do things like I'm doing right now and speak out about it, because what I found, especially with men, is, you know, I can go on Facebook right now and make a post like, hey, uh, if you're an abu- if you're an abu- abused man, contact me. Uh, that doesn't work. You know, what I found works is when I actually – when they actually hear and see another man stand up and say, hey, this is my experience, I know I'm not the only one, you know, then that tends to to, to get the conversation going. So, you know, a big part of it is just getting exposure really – and getting in front of men and saying, hey, this is and helping them realize to helping people realize that what abuse actually looks like. People are in abusive situations that don't realize they're in abusive situations, uh, you know, because they think, well, I'm, he's not beating me, so I'm OK. But there's so many other factors and so many other elements. And so, you know, just the education part of it, um, helping people know, even if you're not it, but you you probably have somebody in your circle, you know, Uh, and your family that might be experiencing it. So being able to know some of the signs and the red flags and so on and so forth so that when it does pop up, you know, you can recognize it. Um, So those are just a few things.
3: Right. I'm looking at another interesting statistic here again from the Centers for Disease Control. And it says that in non-reciprocally violent relationships – Women were the perpetrators in more than 70% of the cases. This is according to a study titled differences in frequency of violence and reported injury uh, between relationships with reciprocal and non-reciprocal intimate partner violence. So I guess what they're saying is when it's one-sided, if it's non-reciprocal, meaning it's one-sided, 70% of the cases involve women being the perpetrators. So if it's one-sided 70% of the time, it's a woman.
7: Right. And that goes back to my earlier point where you do have men that, that they just don't believe in hitting women or they know if I retaliate against this woman, it's going to do a lot more damage to her than what she's doing to me, you know? And, And, you know, so those risk factors go way up. So, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot more of this happening than people realize.
3: And, uh, the statistics about women more likely to use deadly weapons against men or even just an object, a blunt object, an ashtray or, or something. Uh, was, was that your, was that your experience? How were you being abused specifically?
7: Yeah. So the, the physical abuse, um, ranged from just being hit with their hand. You know, I've had things thrown at me. I've been chased with a knife, um, bit. Um, I actually have pictures of me with bite marks over my arms and back. Um, But so, yes, the the physical part was some of my experience, but but there was more verbal and emotional than it was actually physical.
3: All right. The um, the website, again, just want to make sure people uh, get this is make moves dot org, make moves dot org. And uh, Twitter is we underscore make moves and uh, on Facebook of uh, makemoves.org. So, um, final word, uh, wh- what would you like to say to men out there who are listening and, uh, maybe, uh, are being subjected to some sort of, uh, abuse, either f- physical, emotional, mental, what would you say to them?
7: I would like to say that what you are experiencing does not make you any less of a man. Um, and you aren't alone. Uh, it doesn't have to continue. And I know it's hard very often to see a way out, uh, but there is and there is hope. There is help. There are people who understand and are willing to help um, if they would contact me even going to my site. There is a contact form, even though I may not be in your state or even in your country. Um, we are building a database of resources as much as we can to be able to direct people. To the resources that are in their area. So if I can't provide you with an answer, I, can, I will connect you with somebody
3: who can. Hampton, a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank
7: you for taking, a hot, taking the time to have this important conversation.
3: All right. Hampton E. Conway III, and he's the executive director of the Movement Ministries. All right. Well, that was a busy show. Yeah, that's it for me. My thanks to Brandon DePont and Jody Panu. A brand new feature begins tomorrow and every Friday around uh, 4.53 p.m. The Lim Riddler will also have legal analyst and founder of Judicial Watch Larry Klayman. Paul Preston is the president of the Movement for a New California State and tomorrow is Foodie Friday. Jeff Cole, co-host of Saga 960 Stein and Dash will be here. One of my favorite people on Twitter, writer, cultural, political commentator and host of Informed Dissent, Leonidas Johnson will be here. Plus, the arrest but lovable one, Lou Skeezus. I think that's too much, show. Ah, you deserve it. All right. The Bob McCowan show is coming up next after the news. See you tomorrow at four. Don't be late. Until then, I remain unbent, unbowed, unbroken.